You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome to this episode of the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Caroline Phillips. In this episode, I speak with Julia Samuel, a grief psychotherapist, all about ways in which we can impact on families and carers when breaking bad news and supporting those in the initial phases of grief. We also talk about how we can protect our own resilience as healthcare professionals and ways in which we might be able to support one another. Please be mindful that this episode may have some triggering features for some individuals, so please look after yourselves when you're listening to it. I hope you enjoy it. Hi Julia, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's lovely to meet you, I'm very glad to be on your podcast. Thank you Julia, it's a real pleasure. Um, So for us as pre-hospital clinicians, the topic of grief um, and I guess specifically sort of breaking bad news, but grief as a whole concept has only recently been introduced to us in terms of education. Um, It's only recently featured on our training programs, um, both in-house training and also undergraduate training as well. Um, which is That's is astonishing. It's quite baffling, isn't it? Um, just in terms of figures, particularly in London, which is where I'm based. Uh, last year, we saw just over six thousand deaths. We attended to just over six thousand deaths, six thousand two hundred roughly, um, and the majority of these deaths are, you know, given given our line of work, they are unexpected. Um, and sometimes traumatic, um, and about a third of them are actually expected deaths, so people that have already had a bit of preparation, perhaps been working with their GP or their primary care team, um, and maybe have had a little bit of work in terms of building up to the death. But the majority are actually unexpected and and often traumatic. Um, So I'm really pleased that we're able to talk to you today and gain a bit of your insight. Um, We'll just have a little snapshot in this hour of all your expertise, but it's really wonderful to be able to speak to you. So we're very grateful to have you. Um, So what I'd like to do first, if it's okay with you, Julia, is if you could very briefly just describe some of your clinical background and how you got into grief and, and grief work. So I'm a psychotherapist. And um, my first job, which I had for 25 years, was at St. Mary's Hospital Paddington, where I supported families where a baby died from the maternity unit or through pediatrics, through the intensive care unit. And there I supported families who maybe the child um, had a life-limiting illness and was going to die, but m- mostly was, was sudden death or, or, um, de- or death over a period of time in the hospital. And I supported the staff and did a lot of training um, of the staff to support them. And that's why I'm so astonished that you haven't had any training. I mean, you must come into contact with more death than many clinicians in a hospital, you know, in your everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it feels an absolutely devastating kind of absence that you don't get the input that you need to be able to give yourselves the confidence that you're doing your job um, in the best way that you can. Um, and I think always any clinician, whether it's pre-admission like you or, or in, a, in a hospital or with a GP, wherever it is, that when you're telling someone that they're going to die or they have died, 
there's a part of you that feels a failure because all of you have gone into this business to make people better. So one of the important things I've kind of learned from all my, my work at St. Mary's and then I'm found a patron of a charity called Child Bereavement UK where we do a lot of training of healthcare professionals. Um, one of the big things that I kind of say is that, well, two things. One is that you need to um, not conflate the feeling with the fact that you feel a failure or you feel bad or you feel like you've done it wrong with the fact that you've done it the best you possibly can and that this is a terrible situation and that you need to hold both aspects side by side mm. but not put them together. Yeah. And the other thing is to have some training like this or understanding like this so that the more you can have confidence in a situation where you feel very frightened and you would always feel frightened, um, some basic knowledge, which I hope we'll get across today, um, that that will support you to be able to show your humanity. Yeah. Because probably the single biggest thing that matters isn't the exact words. People always want the exact words. It isn't exactly what you say. Mm. It's much more how you connect with them and how you show it, that you show your humanity and your compassion. And the difficulty with paramedics is everything is so fast. It's like A&E. And when everything is accelerated, your capacity to connect with someone is narrowed because you're always thinking of what you need to be doing, what you know, treatment you need to be giving. And around death, once death has happened, um, we need to slow down so that you can connect with yourself to enable you to connect with the family of this person that's died. And, and I think also on that point as well, Julia, it's so perhaps a little, in some ways, trickier for us as well because we've never met the patient or the relatives or whoever is on scene before. Usually it's very unlikely that we have done. So I guess in a way that makes it harder to connect but perhaps that takes off a little bit of maybe the pain that we might feel in terms of delivering any any news as such because we haven't had that relationship with the patient and the family before. Well, I, I agree it is very different when you don't know someone. But if you think of the kind of incidents in your own lives where someone has just been, who you've never met before, has shown kindness, you know, that you're on a tube and you're upset and someone passes you a tissue or... Um, you know, I had it in a hospital where I was having anaesthetic and a nurse gave me a particularly kind look at just before I was anaesthetized. It's those small acts of kindness, of humanity that people remember. And that connection, you don't need to know them. And then, like you say, in some ways, not having a huge loss yourself, although you, you can't not be affected by it. Being with someone in the presence of their dying when you're in the job to try and save their life, it will send your whole system on alert, and it does. Mm -hmm. And you then think of all the protocols that you have to do and what you should be doing, and then when it fails and they die, that is, you you will feel it bodily. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happens with you or the people listening, but most people feel it like fear in their bodies, mm -hmm. or they get frozen in their bodies. Mm -hmm. But their whole autonomic nervous system goes on alert. It's heightened. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what kind of when you're on alert like that, that to some extent 
your capacity to think and cognate and connect goes offline because when you're on fight or flight, which you are when you're working, the thing, it's a different operating system to be able to communicate effectively. Does that make sense? Because yes. you need to slow down. Yes. In order to connect, you need to slow down. Mm. And so, I mean, one of the techniques I give people is you don't have to do it so that they can see you, but take five long breaths, you know, before you speak. So take a big breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Breathe in for five, hold for five, and out for five is a good one. But that may be asking too much. But just even a few long breaths mm. enable you. And there's no hurry. The person has died. The emergency is done. So I think there's this sense of urgency all the time when you're when you're a paramedic and an aim. So the big thing, first of all, is to slow down. I think that's a really important... To finish my my background, so I worked at Mary's. I um, worked with... I've now actually stepped down, but I'm still finding a patron with Child Bereavement UK training professionals, and I did a... I designed a palliative care training around paediatrics for the Royal College of Paediatricians and Child Health, which I delivered for, I think, about 12 years, or 15 years. And um, then I wrote a book, Grief Works. Um, which is case studies of people who are bereaved. Yes. Thank you. So I've gone in and out. I haven't been very direct-rooted. No, that's perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think what's nice, and hopefully we'll touch a little bit more about on this in a minute, is that the key thing really is about being a, a human with the other human that you're speaking with and breaking that news to. And I think one of the... And, and having, as you say, the education to back up what you're saying really, for me, really for me is to provide a bit of confidence behind actually probably what we do, hopefully naturally, mm-hmm. as caring people anyway. Um, but I think certainly I remember the first time that I had to tell somebody that actually it was that their mother had died. And I remember, you know, those those feelings that you talk about, you're still very much in a fight or flight mode. The adrenaline's still running. It was the first time that I'd done it. There was only a couple of us on scene. So it was really just me that was was having this conversation with with uh, this lady after her mother had died. And I think you want to do your very best. Um, and but, but being a human and being a caring person, um, it's... It's just really what's what's needed. But I, I'm really looking forward to getting into a little bit more detail with, with you on this. Um, what's interesting from what you're saying, and will be true, I think, of everybody listening, is that you have as much video-like recall of, of many of the times that you broke bad news as the families do. Mm. And... So you will, you, I could see in your in your face that you went back to the place it was, and you can remember so much about it. Of course, you've done it a long time now, so you won't remember everyone, but you'll remember a lot of them, and they live in you those those experiences, mm. and they do also influence your next event that happens. Mm. Um, and I mean, we will talk about how you debrief yourself so that you kind of come to a new event clean as it were um that's all I was going to say I think it's a really interesting and and useful thing to keep in mind because 
carrying through all of the cases where we have delivered some bad news actually and knowing that we carry them with us is quite important in terms of our own well-being so I'm looking forward to touching on that in a little while yeah so um I wonder um for those listeners that perhaps haven't experienced grief themselves I wondered if you could talk to us briefly about what happens what does it feel like for the person who's experienced a loss um and whether you know we can read certain theories and certain um stages I guess of grief but in your clinical experience how often do people stick with those stages and and what's it like actually in real life from your clinical perspective so grief is um the experience of grief that at the at the moment at that moment the person has died the task of grief and the process is mourning the process of grieving is mourning is to find a way of living with and facing the reality of the death and that's the task and that doesn't mean that you live with the reality and you kind of put it behind you and you forget about it it's finding a way of accommodating this new piece of reality that your mother has died your brother has died or in the terrible cases, your child has died. And pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces us to face this new reality that we don't want to be true. And it's often the things that we do to block the pain that do us harm. But at the moment of the death, we need as much data and memory as possible for that pain to... Um, come back to us in our memories for then us to adjust to this new process of, of mourning. Does that make, yes. make sense? Yeah. When people aren't present in the ambulance, say when they're following in a car and the person dies in an ambulance, every piece of the jigsaw that's missing, everything they didn't see, can haunt them and preoccupy them. Mm. So as much as we may want to protect people from witnessing a death, Actually seeing it and seeing its limits is better than imagining it because our imagination is limitless and grotesque. And however bad the truth is, we can find a way of living with and facing the reality of the death. I, Kubler-Ross's phases and stages of mourning is the most well-known. The, the, the theory that I think is more helpful is the dual process, someone by Dr. Strobe and Shute. And what um, they talk about is that at the moment of the loss, whatever the loss is, we have an instinctive drive to mourn, to feel the loss, to feel the pain, to express our grief, to remember, to be numb, to cut off, do all the things that we do with grieving, and a drive to be restorative, to get on with life, to survive, to go forward and kind of be okay and have a break from the pain. And I think the process of grieving in that facing this new reality is the process of oscillating between the loss and restoration. So that if you give yourself opportunities to remember, and it's how we remember that we grieve, it's not by forgetting, it touchstones to memory. And because the love for the person never dies. And I think for, for you, in the ambulance with people, 
to remember that when the person has died, the people around them love them as much, maybe even more than when they were alive. So everything that you do to them, how you touch their hand, how you pick them up, how you handle them, how you talk to them, how you are with them, they will feel very sensitive towards. And, you know, there'd be many instances when, I sort of won't go into, where families have been incredibly distressed of what's happened to the bodies of, of family members. And I think often clinicians thought, well, they've died. But actually, the love never dies. So that's an important um, thing to remember. But the oscillation in the theory is the movement between loss and restoration, that doing, giving yourself a break from grief, going for an exercise, going to take exercise, being with a friend, um, going for a walk, anything that kind of gives you a release from the pain, then you go back and you focus on it. And over that time, you incrementally adjust to this new normal, this new landscape that you, you didn't want. The other person who's, whose um, theory is good is, is um, Warden, William Warden. And his tasks um, fit within that loss and restoration, which is to um, face the reality of the loss, that this is the, the truth to find a way of adjusting to this new reality and living with it, accepting it, to um, begin to uh, reframe your life given that this has happened to you, kind of finding a way of living with it. And in the last one is to live again and love again, that you, in the accommodation, that person is always there, but they're not front of mind. And so you have more energy to kind of live again, love again, and engage in your life. Mm. If that makes does yeah. that make sense? It does. It does. Yes, thank That's you. So, and I think from for the paramedic perspective, the thing to think about every time you have a death in in um, with you, whether it's in an ambulance on the side of the road or in the house of the family, whatever it is, is that that family is very unique. And I think one of the things that professionals often do is overestimate what you should be able to make a difference to. So if you look at what the impact is on the family, what makes a difference to the family, it will be their relationship with the person who's died. It will be their previous history of losses or not losses. It will be um, the predicting outcome for how they survive and thrive or not after death is the support they get at the time and after the death. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that influences is the circumstances of the death. Yeah. So, you know, a sudden and unexpected death. I don't think there's a hierarchy in death, you know, because even an expected death, you've been told that your husband has cancer, It's he's got six months to live and he dies in his fifth month. There's a way that it is always unexpected when somebody dies. It is always a shock when they die. But, of course, there has been more of an opportunity to talk, to have opportunities to have different conversations. And so often what people talk about is sudden and traumatic death, and particularly with child death when it's a death out of time, a death that shouldn't happen in our kind of understanding of life, is that it's grief with the volume turned up. So all the normal experiences of grief of being angry, numb, um, sad, um, furious, confused, lost, 
all, you know, moored, all those different feelings people have, with sudden and traumatic death, it's that's intensified. I've heard that description um, through when someone has died as a result of suicide as well. That sort of it's grief, but it's really turned up. The volume is really on high. And it's really interesting as well to think about how the behaviours of somebody at the time can really impact on that person's, um, I'm not sure if recovery is the, is the right word to use, but on their their work through the grieving process. And I think perhaps that's something that we might be really uh, mindful of as paramedics and as pre-hospital clinicians. I think sometimes we're so worried about doing or saying the wrong thing and we've had some really, uh, really lovely feedback actually recently, uh, some very generous feedback from uh, some parents who uh, their child was dying and the ambulance crew that were with them were there. And we had the two sides of the story actually on reflection of the case and the crew that were there described feeling incredibly uncomfortable and almost a bit useless um, because they couldn't do because we're trained to do. Oh. And actually what the what the mother said um, on reflection of this case was that actually what she felt was so powerful to her was the fact that the paramedics were there and sitting there. And witnessing it. And witnessing it. Yeah. So I'd be really interested to know your thoughts on on the ways in which healthcare professionals are with people whose loved ones are dying and what their actions are and what are good actions and perhaps what are some potential pitfalls in our behaviour and in our delivery of news. Um, Is there anything that is really a no-no that you've seen in your work with clients or people after that process? So, I mean, that's a lot of questions and there's about a hundred answers I could give you so I think the first one is that being present and witnessing the death like supporting the family by your presence never underestimate the importance of that that you may not remember their face but you'll probably remember the circumstances but they will remember everything about you what you're wearing the color of your socks they'll remember every word they have you know this is the worst experience of their life or certainly one of them, even if it's their grandmother that's died, that was kind of, you know, is a, is a natural death. Um, so they have video like recall of it. And they part of their mourning is to be able to go back and replay it because that, is, as we said, is the process of grieving. The things that injure them on the whole to avoid is anything that tries to kind of make it better, in quotes, that in some way they feel you're diminishing um, their experience so you know those old kind of cliches of she's gone to a better place or um, you know how many children have you got if a child died as if having other children would make it better or so the two the sort of three touchstones that I think everybody who is a paramedic will have because you wouldn't be in this profession um, but to let yourselves know that you have them and have the confidence to have them is first of all your humanity that you're there because you care about people so show your humanity let yourself feel it and let them 
feel it. And it's often not with words. It's by how you look. It's how you kind of sit with them. Um, listening is probably your greatest tool that you do need to communicate. And we'll talk a bit more about that. But you don't have to say very much. It's much more checking what they understand, what they need, um, and responding to them. And listen with your whole being, kind of slow down again, breathe, listen with your eyes. 70% of communication is nonverbal. Listen to the content of what they're saying. Don't assume what you've heard, which people often do. You're so busy answering what they've said, you don't hear it. And listen with your heart. So listen with your compassion. And kind of recognize that everybody's different. They'll be very influenced by their culture. Mm. So that will influence their response. But also everyone has a default response in a crisis. So some people shut down. Some people yell. Some people um, will pray. Some people hit things. I mean, you'll have seen all of those things. But not to judge them, but to be empathic and that none of us know how we would react in similar circumstances. So to be, to listen to them, to be empathic and to respond to their needs so that you, if you think you're putting data in their memory that they will go back and, and this makes it worse for you, I guess, but they will go back and they'll play it hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what matters. I think... What people need at the time is they need the truth. So although this sounds a bit bonkers, um, when the person has died, I would turn to the family and check with them before you speak to them. Do you understand that your mother has died? And, and they will say yes. And then I would, so you, so that they, so that you equal, so often there's a thing of, you're the professional and with your knowledge and your training of what you do and they are the and so you're that expert they're the expert on themselves on their culture their family their relationship with this person and you communicate expert to expert Mm. as equals Mm. does that does that make sense yeah it really does so you communicate to them and saying that 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 your mom your the, the sentence that you can say is i'm so sorry to tell you as you would have seen your mother, brother, child. If you know their name, use their name. So don't call the family the mum, the dad. Ask them what they want to be called. Don't call the person. Call them their name because that feels like they're subjective, not objective. Yeah. Has died. And all you have to say is, I'm so sorry, so-and-so has died. Leave some space. You don't have to jump in with, with lots of words. I think by the end of your communicating, you need to say what is likely to happen next. We're heading to the mortuary, we're heading to the hospital, we're heading to the hospice, wherever it is. When we get there, da-da-da, so that you say what is likely to happen. All the time, check their understanding, because people's capacity to listen and take in what you say goes offline when they're devastated. So by that, by you, can I just check you've understood me? And they say yes, but often they'll say something that's completely different. They were in La La Land. So then that ha- all most of the litigation of complaints, it's often not that the, the information wasn't communicated, it was that it wasn't heard, if you see what I mean. So it wasn't transmitted. And most clinicians think they communicate much better than they 
to do. <laughs> because they're understanding what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like I said at the beginning, probably the biggest thing you can do is A, listen, but also speak slowly. The tone of, so when people speak very fast like this, it's very hard to take it in, and also your compassion completely gets drained out. So when you speak slowly, you come across much more empathic. You have more emotional bandwidth for them to connect to, and they will trust you. And that's the thing you want to leave them with, that I trusted that professional. You know, I felt like I was in good hands. I felt like they knew what they were doing. I felt they really cared for my child, mother, sister, brother. I felt like they really looked after me. That's the feeling that you want. And ask them what questions they have. You know, do you understand why they died? Well, you may not know. I mean, that, that may have to be from a, um, a, a post-mortem, but then you'd have to say, we don't know how he died. Or, um, so give them as much information as you have, mm. because, again, what they don't know, they make up and it haunts them. And give them time. I mean, it's, uh, it's different for you in that there's, you're kind of on a route and you get somewhere and it has its own trajectory and time span. But certainly in hospitals, and I don't know if it, it would be true, is the thing that stops families getting most what they need is, is the speed, is not giving the families time. Mm. Time to make memories, time to say goodbye, time to be with their child or their, their parent or whatever it is, because that is the data they live off. If you think between now and the funeral is the only time they're going to have with that person ever again in their life. So every decision they make and everything that you do um, is the only opportunity they're going to have to do that. Mm -hmm. So that you want the, the thing that derails the grieving process is regrets. I wish I'd put that him in his football um, strip. I wish I'd held his hand. I wish I'd kissed him. I wish I'd spent more time with him. I had a client yesterday whose child died as an adult in a different country and um, she was so shocked when she saw him in the mortuary, she can't remember his face mm. because she did stay there, but she, it, she was still so much in shock. There's so little that she can remember. Yeah. Yeah. And a professional may have said to her, remember you can come back, you, you, you only spent however long that was. Maybe in a few days you want to come back. Um, because, you know, you, you'll, you'll probably want to recall it. She'd, I actually always suggest they take photographs. Mm. Um, so, again, the more data that you have, mm. that's that piece of reality that you're not haunted by. And I think something that we sometimes may forget as well is to is to encourage encourage that and encourage the person if we have been undertaking a resuscitation perhaps and we've been in the room with the patient the now deceased and we have asked the family members to step outside it's so tempting to, to want to do that to be able to have full concentration on on your work at the time and what you're trying to do but um I, I think like you mentioned earlier them being outside and not being able to witness what's happening and seeing the facts and then after the death 
encouraging people to if they have been in a separate area through choice if they wanted to or if they're in a different area of the room encouraging them to come and be with the person and we have different different sort of processes across the country but certainly in London if it's an unexpected death then we do need to keep the the deceased still and keep some of our devices in situ but we can explain that and we can explain we just need to keep this here but but please come and hold their hand talk to them etc that's very different in the case of an expected death is is quite an old protocol i think it's changed or certainly it's changed in the training that i've always done in that i think it's really done to protect you that it is more stressful having a family member there and maybe if that is how you feel then you have to do it because it may stop you from being able to do the job effectively but when i've seen families who saw resuscitations and i've seen hundreds of families that have they say to me i knew they they did everything they could. Yeah. I saw that they tried everything. Yeah. When they're sent outside, there's always this thing of I'm being excluded. What did they hide from me? Yeah. What did I miss? Yeah. Did they not try? Did they only do it twice? They told me they did this. But they don't know. So it is more haunting. Yeah. I mean, they may not want to be there. That's a different thing. So choose. If you think for the family, everything that has happened is completely out of their control. They are thrown into this alien place all of a sudden that they may never have been anywhere close to before. So anything that you can do that can give them a feeling of agency and knowledge um, supports them and balances them. And that that makes an enormous difference for their grieving process that lasts for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is um, siblings. So, sorry, there was one other thing I was going to say, is often with every best intention of being compassionate, professionals want to protect families from suffering. I don't want you to see your your child's face who's been in a car crash or in a motorbike crash because it will bother you. In my experience, again, the images of what it might have looked like is infinitely worse than seeing them. So I've had many, many um, clients who wish they'd seen them after, even a terrible a fire, all sorts of terrible incidents, they wish they'd seen them. And they feel that somehow they failed, in this case it was children, you know, well, they're adult children, but they're, they're still always their child, by not seeing them. Like, I should, I'm their mum or I'm their dad, and I should have had the courage to insist on seeing my son. Like, the doctor saw his face, or the, the paramedics saw him burnt, and I didn't, and I feel like I failed. Does that does that? That's really interesting. It's really interesting that feeling of failure, and I wonder how that works, Julia, in your experience um, with paediatrics, with children witnessing the death of a parent or a sibling. You know, very very young children or teenagers. Does the same apply? In my my book, so I mean, when I talk to families, um, I always say that you know your children best, so that whatever I say comes under that lens is that, you know, you have to, it has to be right for you and your family and what you believe and how you are. But what all the research shows is that children need the same truth as all the adults around them. And again, the same thing, what they don't know, they make up. And that protection doesn't feel like protection. It feels like they don't matter. 
like they've been excluded. They've been sent off to the grandmother, so they're not the ones that matter. They didn't go to the funeral. All of that protection is experienced as exclusion. And they can then be very, very angry afterwards. Mm. Why didn't you let me see him? He's my brother. Why didn't you let me come to the funeral? All of those things. Mm. Um, so, you know, say a father dies of a heart attack in his front room with a five-year-old and you, you turn up. I, it would be that if, the, if he had as a partner or a mother of the child or, or whoever else is there, it would obviously be their decision. But I think what children see supports them. How you communicate that to them makes a difference. So you can't use metaphors like gone to a better place, missing, lost, all of the words that we use to try and make death less real yeah. um, is actually very unhelpful because children have, like we do, have magical thinking. Yeah. And then, you know, I worked with a family not long ago where the, the little girl said, you know, when's my sister coming back? Because she was told that she'd gone to heaven. And heaven could be a hamburger joint. It could be the name of her best friend. Um, you know, it's very, very confusing. So you have to say that so-and-so has died. Mm -hmm. right? um, he looks like he's asleep, but he's not asleep. His body doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And he's dead. And that would be true of saying about an adult that's died or a sibling that's died. Yes, yes, yeah. And speaking to an adult as well, as we've mentioned. Yes. I, personally, I mean, without being condescending or patronising, I think we're much more helpful when we're as clear and as slow as compassionate as if we were talking to a child. Because when you're in shock, your capacity to think and take in is, is so narrowed and so diminished. That's a very good tip. Very good tip, yes. I think something that perhaps because of adrenaline or because of the way we are, we're quite, um, you know, speedy, busy clinicians. Um, fixers. This isn't what you're trained to do. You're trained to fix. Yes. To do the resuscitation, to get them back to life. So this plays into everything that you didn't want to do in this business. It's probably the most difficult aspect by miles of your work. But also remember secondary trauma. I mean, I don't know how much you all know about secondary trauma. Bereavement by exposure is, type. Of, okay. Yes. Yeah. In some ways, yours is, could be primary trauma mm. um, because you're present. So I would imagine doing a resuscitation and that failing under your hands could be a traumatic experience for, for some people, mm. depending what story, the narrative that you tell yourself and the belief then you tell yourself. Um, but also you can uh, get secondary trauma by witnessing the distress of the family members. So they're, say, screaming, you know, overwhelmed with the loss. Mm. And that, you know, we are wired bodily. So the body remembers, the body holds the score. So we take in... It's transmitted like kind of signals into our body. They're huge levels of distress and our body absorbs them. And if you're a professional, you kind of have to sit there and breathe and absorb it. But you take it away with you out of that ambulance, mm -hmm. out of the place. Mm -hmm. And so the, the kind of final thing that I think every professional, but certainly for paramedics, you have to take self-care seriously as part of your professional practice. This isn't you being a wimp, this isn't you not coping, but actually if you're gonna have both a private life where you kind of thrive in your private life, 
and you don't have mental health problems and drink and all the other things mm-hmm. and also feel as a profe- a, uh, an effective um, professional, you need, no one will do it for you. You need to take responsibility for your well-being. Um, and, you know, that is vital. On my website, www.juliasamuel.com, co.uk i'll leave the details down below yeah okay there's the under the section of what helps there's eight pillars of strength have you seen the eight pillars yes yeah even if people only take two or three of those that will balance them so what what you kind of need to think of yourselves as a as a, a kind of animal organism as a body organism that when you've been to an incident your whole system goes out of sync, it goes on alert, it's vigilant. You're coursing with adrenaline, you have images and memories and everything that's in you. You then need to do things that wind that system down and release that. So part of it would be a debrief with a colleague, it can be talking to each other, it could be journaling. Probably the single most important thing that you can do is exercise. Because if you um, exercise, it tells your body you flow mm. as opposed to, um, and it reduces the cortisol and it gives you the um, endorphins that kind of calm you. And then you can do things that restore you. So choosing to do things that calm you, whether it's being in nature, whether it's cooking, not mine, um, <laughs> you know, listening to music, being with friends, yeah. all of those things. Because if you look at the stats from the General Medical Council, all health professions have worse mental and physical health than the national average. If you think the national average has one in four has a mental illness Mm. at one point in their life, Mm. and half the population is divorced, and I can't remember what are alcoholics and addicts, yours is worse Mm. than that. Yeah. So you've all gone into profession to make people better and really treating yourselves like shit in the process. So. I'm so glad that you've you've touched on this because I think that actually there's recently been a, a study released, a, um, a review of uh, lots of different systematic reviews um, and specifically looking at emergency responders. So it's not just ambulance clinicians, but it's also police um, those that do emergency responding by themselves as a, as a volunteer, military, recently released by Kings. And again, I'll leave that in, in the notes section, a link to it. But it describes exactly what you've said and that particularly generalised anxiety disorder as well as depression features very, um, very much so in ambulance clinicians. So about 50% of ambulance clinicians generalized anxiety disorder and I think it's very I think what I I love and what I just echo what what you said Julia is about doing things to remove the stress whether it is grief or what or you know secondary what did you call it Julia secondary trauma or what I sort of use the analogy is the the drip drip effect of of hard emotional work that we take on whether that's seeing patients who are no fixed abode uh, perhaps through choice and they you know have a very rough life whether it's seeing elderly patients who live alone and perhaps don't have the care support they need whatever it is all of these things 
we we absorb a bit and, and also you know aside from that just your general life your alarm that keeps going off um the, the alarm that wakes you up in the morning um the emails that come into your email box all of these things need some kind of counteraction don't they and and I, I love that sort of analogy of of balance the balancing scales and making sure if you've got something heavy on one side get get rid of it by doing something to counteract it on the other so I'm glad you mentioned that definitely that and you know 50% having generalized anxiety anxiety I mean grief one of the most kind of common feelings around grief is fear grief feels like fear it can feel like all sorts of things but mainly it feels like fear and um, you could translate that fear as anxiety. You know, that there is a lot of unprocessed memories, experiences, and you know, again, this kind of storm of transmission of other people's distress that is deposited in your bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what that anxiety disorder is, mm-hmm. is a buildup of tons of deposits for other people's distress Mm. and then you try and have be a decent mum or a decent partner or have fun you know it's much much harder and so I think we need to do things that help us be resilient and as you as we both saying the same thing like find ways of releasing the distress and exercises you know I kickbox so I punch a guy really hard every single week and he can't believe I'm very short how much I want to hurt him. But the rest of what I do is incredibly passive and compassionate and listening. So I need, but I see and hear terrible things. Mm. So I have to do stuff to get out my fury at the unfairness, the injustice, the awfulness of stuff that happens. Mm. Um, but what was I going to, there was something else I was going to say. Um, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to add to that as well, Julia, was the fact that, especially because we've got quite a transient workforce now, so we we traditionally had crewmates that would work together permanently for, you know, when I started working in the service, some crewmates had been together for 15, 20 years. They were probably spent more time together than they did with their spouse or their family. Um, but that doesn't happen so much anymore. Yes, people have permanent colleagues, permanent crewmates for periods of time. But actually, we have a lot of staff, a lot of new members of staff who fill in for people who are off sick or on annual leave. Um, so we don't have really that kind of partnership working as much as we did before, where you really know the person that you're working with. And you've had the same experiences of patients and their families for the last month, two months, three months. And so I think sometimes that makes it hard to be able to have a really sort of open discussion if you're if you're feeling a little bit affected by something. But also what I wanted to say was that what we know is that often it's not the the sort of really traumatic experiences that we see that really affect us immediately although of course they can do often it is the the things where you've been to perhaps an expected death and 
the person wore the same slippers as your grandfather or just something that no your, your colleague if they didn't know you and they didn't know how you would normally behave and how chatty you are or when you like some downtime they might not recognize that perhaps you're not being quite yourself um and i think that it's it's wise for us to bear in mind that if we go to any kind of loss or particularly emotive situation it, it can be good just to sort of have a how are you all right you, with your colleague because actually they might have had a trigger that was so subtle that we would never even notice and perhaps it's sort of every day or sort of run-of-the-mill type you know for want of a better phrase um experiences that we've seen but it might just be remember one of my colleagues saying to me uh, literally about a patient having the same socks as her son and that was just it. And she just said, I went home and I had to get rid of his socks. I threw his socks in the bin and, you know, and her colleague had no idea because it just, just was a, a little thing. Um, so the other thing to add to that is I'm sure that none of you debrief or have supervision enough. And um, if I was in charge of, of your practice, I would say it was crucial to your mental health, to the well-being of the whole team, to have regular debriefs and supervision, um, even if it's only once a month, mm. e even if it's only an hour once a month. But I don't see how you can be in the presence of so many critical incidents and not have the opportunity to talk it through. The best model for it that I did at Mary's for years is the Gibbs reflection model yeah. it's a very good way of having a debrief it's very simple it's very straightforward and people don't like it because I'm sure there's a culture in your culture which is a kind of um, I'm all right Jack culture you know, superhero I'm complex mm. yeah yeah and uh, that's a very unhelpful one to have and some Sometimes maybe you are a superhero, but every superhero has his bad day and has his vulnerabilities and fault lines and needs to be supported. Mm. So, I mean, that's what, if I had a, could influence anybody, it would be that you have that as a, a kind of, not someone needing to ask for it, because then they become the needy, difficult one, or the weak one, or whatever it's seen. But that it's just part normal part of practice that you have a debrief once a month mm. and you talk about the really difficult incidents that are sitting in you. And the big thing that comes out of that is, in a way, what you were talking about is that you recognize everybody is affected mm. by different things and you learn much more to accept what you're feeling. But also it builds a lot of team strength when you have the time to kind of hear how it affected somebody else and how they were with each other. And then even if you're quite a new team, it's a very fast track way of building trust. Mm. And doing your job, having a trust and connection with your teammates is a massive um, support to give you confidence to manage every kind of emergency. That is what will predict again how you kind of operate. And your mental health mm. makes a big difference. Mm. that you can have dark jokes and tease each other, but also that you can cry together and be honest with each other. And supervision fast-tracks that. Two supervisions over two months, somebody you've never met before, you, you can feel quite trusting of because you've seen each other at a deeper level. Mm. And, you do, and I like the fact with the clinical supervision as well that you do have a structure to it and you are learning as well as... It's very... It's quite structured and... Um, 
it's a learning process as well as perhaps a are you okay how can we assist you it's a, it definitely has got more of a psychologically supportive because mm. it's the fear of doing it wrong yeah. or making a mistake that 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 knocks your capacity to be able to do it. So the fact that your learning builds your resilience mm. and your confidence, and you kind of know what your fault lines are more, so you know and you know other people's. So it's it's much more part of who you are rather than oh my god, I'm everyone else has got it sorted and I'm the idiot that's got it wrong. Yeah, it's shared. Thing. It's shared experiences, isn't it? Yeah. And something that I find we 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 have started doing. I think. If I'm able to say, and I've said this actually in a previous episode, one of the one of the few positive aspects which has come out of um, the the COVID crisis is that actually we've had a really fantastic, we've had amazing support from some of our other colleagues, emergency services. So we've got fire brigade who are working with our paramedics and, and clinicians. We've got lots of volunteers. We've got um, students who are working to support and help us. And so one of the um, one of the few positives that we've seen is actually that our clinicians have had a bit more downtime. So you know, many years ago, you would com- you would see a patient, you would complete your paperwork, and you would come back to the ambulance station, and you'd have a cup of tea with your colleague and have a chat. Sure. And that really hasn't happened for many years because of the demand on the service but now what we've seen with coronavirus is actually colleagues sitting down and chatting and we're starting to see a bit more of that offloading in a in a informal way um which is nice but we started to see a few sort of yes informal informal, yes an air of professionality that you're being professional when you're doing yeah which i think is much more supportive rather than just uh, we're sneaking one in. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Do you have any tips, Julia? I'm a particular fan in terms of we would call it sort of a hot debrief. So just after the case, um, I'm a particular fan of the stop model, which was created by Edinburgh Emergency. I wonder if you had any sort of uh, techniques that perhaps we've got quite a lot of paramedics who supervise students and um, sometimes have two students at a time. Um, I wondered if you had any models for sort of there and then hot debriefs that you really liked, or is that anything that's ever come up with, with your with your work? I think hot debrief is really good. I think the stop model is extremely good. Um, even the Gibbs reflection model, is like you know, you can use what was the worst bit, what was the thing the thing that you did, and what do you want to learn? I mean, that's three questions. Um, is helpful. Mm. Thank you. I think for, you know, we are storytelling beings and um, a hot debrief, you can't tell a story, but often I think if people journal what happened, there's very good research from um, Harvard that shows it's as helpful as talking to a therapist. Mm. So even if you just have a book or in your notes on your phone or whatever it is that you write what happened from the beginning, the middle and the end, that takes a lot of the trauma out of your body. The other thing that I think is worth remembering, if you are traumatized to know what the signals for trauma are, if you're having flashbacks, if you're not sleeping, if you can't concentrate, if um, 
you find that you're not able to emotionally connect. Trauma affects the wiring of the brain. It, it changes your brain. And I would be fascinated to know there's any research on, on the trauma in, in on medics, if there was any MRIs, mm-hmm. and, and paramedics, rather, and MRIs. I don't think there is, not off the top of my but head. I, the, the best and most efficacious and the fastest treatment for trauma is EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Mm-hmm. And the sooner you get the EMDR, if you're aware of the trauma. So trauma lives naturally. If you've had a very traumatic incident, say you were at the Grenfell Tower and you were working and it was horrendous, mm-hmm. you would naturally have flashbacks for six weeks, six to seven weeks. And as you exercise, you do things that intentionally comfort you, you talk to colleagues, you do a debrief, you do your journal, you do all the stuff that you do, and it may well be that the distress leaves your body and you don't have PTSD. So that it's not, it's natural to be traumatized. We're wired to respond like that in an emergency. It's a natural response. And over time, if you do all the things, if you drink a lot and try and squash it, then you, you're going to get PTSD. But if after six or seven weeks and you've done all the things that help you, meditation, breathing, music, exercise, hugs and connection, connection is, the, is probably the biggest one, um, you're still getting flashing images or you get hot sweats, you're not sleeping, all of those things, then you should get EMDR. And the sooner you get it, the more efficacious it is, or the less damage it does to your life. Yeah. So, Julia, that was, um, I mean, I could talk to you for much longer, but that was an awful lot of amazing information. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that you wanted to add just before we finish recording? I think self-compassion, that to give yourselves the kindness and the respect and the value that you would other people, that I think doing very tough jobs, you can be under so much kind of, distress to kind of fix things that you often have what I call a shitty committee and you have this horrible little critical voice in your head yeah so I you know if you can develop a practice of being aware of what is going on in your head but most of all or kind of be self-compassionate there's Kristin Neff has done a great TED talks and videos um, and she's got a little sort of exercise of self-compassion where you breathe and you put your hand on your chest and you go, and if something's really painful, you go, oh, that was really hard. And then you kind of are kind to yourself and then you move your attention away. Mm-hmm. So it takes like two or three minutes. Um, but giving yourself little pockets of self-compassion, I think, will enable you to transmit more compassion, um, but also... Uh, be more more resilient because you know you do not want to kind of wreck your own life saving other people's lives yeah the oxygen mask analogy we look after ourselves yes look after ourselves so we can help others yeah thank you julia thank you so much my pleasure you're listening to the pre-hospital care podcast on the medics academy network 